Jeremiah chapter 23. For those visiting us, we are going through a study of the Belgic Confession, and tonight we'll be Handling two articles, Articles 30 and 31, the, the government of the church. A bit of a survey of various texts that we'll consult tonight as we study this together, seeking God's blessings. So we'll begin with these two readings. First is Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 6. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. He gives it to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 6. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David, a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Amen. And then if you would go to the book of Hebrews towards the end of the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verse 7. It says this, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. And forever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. If you'd like to follow along, go to page 84 in the back of our hymnal. I've got us hopping all over the place tonight. This is exciting stuff. Articles 30 and 31. We have just learned about the church, the marks of the church, and now the government of the church. It says this in Article 30, the faith that we confess. We believe that this true church must be governed by that spiritual polity which our Lord has taught us in his word. 
namely that there must be ministers or pastors to preach the word of God and to administer the sacraments. Also elders and deacons who, together with the pastors, form the council of the church, that by these means the true religion may be preserved and the true doctrine everywhere propagated, likewise transgressors punished and restrained by spiritual means, also that the poor and distressed may be relieved and comforted according to their necessities. By these means, everything will be carried on in the church with good order and decency when faithful men are chosen, according to the rule prescribed by St. Paul in his epistle to Timothy. And then the next article says this, We believe that the ministers of God's word, the elders and the deacons, ought to be chosen to their respective offices by a lawful election by the church, with calling upon the name of the Lord, and in that order which the word of God teaches. Therefore, everyone must take heed not to intrude himself by improper means, but is bound to wait till it shall please God to call him, that he may have testimony of his calling and be certain and assured that it is of the Lord. As for the ministers of God's word, they have equally the same power and authority wheresoever they are, as they are all ministers of Christ, the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. Moreover, in order that this holy ordinance of God may not be violated or slighted, we say that everyone ought to esteem the ministers of God's word and the elders of the church very highly for their work's sake, and be at peace with them without murmuring, strife, or contention as much as possible. God is a God of order. We see that all throughout the world around us. The seasons as they change, we've been going through, experiencing that finally. Uh, very grateful for the, the coming of the spring season and the warm air that's beginning to come around very slowly and yet surely. God is a God of order. Look at the, the cell, the irreducible complexity that we find in various aspects of Nature, And you see how God's design, his fingerprints as it were, you see them all throughout the various parts of this world, the animal kingdom, the way that, that God upholds everything, the various processes by which plant life thrives and comes into full bloom. God is a God of order. And uh, the Reformed churches have always thought the same when it comes to the, the government of God's church. As we read in the article, things are to be done in the church decently and in order. Because God is a God of order. This is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And Paul is addressing some of the chaotic situations that were arising in Corinth in the worship, the public worship services. But we believe that this principle is applied to the church as well, that the church is to be governed and led in these orderly ways. The fact that the church even has a government is a contested claim these days. I've read books that are supposed to have to do with the, the planting of churches, the establishing of churches, and there is no mention made of officers, either elders or Deacons. It's such a thing, these meetings that go by oftentimes Robert's Rules of Order and the committees presenting at these meetings. Right? These, this is not organic. It's not cool. It's not 
hip, and so many people reject these things. We strive to be biblical in the way that we want, that in the way that we seek God's church to be governed. As we've mentioned recently, as we've thought about the doctrine of the church, the New Testament does not know of the possibility of a Christian who is not part of the church. And that's something that we've seen today. That the churchless Christian, or uh, I kind of just know God on my own, I, I kind of get together with, with Jesus on my own time. The scriptures know nothing of that possibility. And when you learn to read the scriptures with the eyes that show how the doctrine of the church is everywhere, it's, it's assumed behind, for instance, all of the letters of Paul, You think of the fact that he's writing to churches and his desire is that they would be rightly constituted, rightly governed, have the officers in place to lead and to govern. When you read the the scriptures with those eyes, all of a sudden it comes out at you how much, how how necessary a robust doctrine of the church really is. Biblical church governance is becoming seemingly more and more important as we go through the many changes that we experience at a fast pace in our culture. You think of just a couple of things that have happened even in the last year or so that highlight how important it is to have church government, church officers, mutual accountability, all these kinds of things. There have been multiple scandals that have come out kind of on both wings of American Christendom. In the Roman Catholic Church, we've had these abuse scandals that have sort of been slowly coming out And we've been hearing more and more about it. If you take a look at at the way that governance happens in in that part of Christendom, it's the power that is placed in the hands of a precious few. And there are aspects of their church governance, we would say those kinds of titles, cardinals and bishops and a pope, that we wouldn't see those titles in Scripture. And we would say it is for that reason that it is oftentimes a a man-made system of governance. We've seen abuse scandals come out of there and abuse of power scandals. Then on the other end of the spectrum, you have a very low view of the doctrine of the church, a very low view of church governance. And that we've seen in the last, even in the last few months, for instance, in the Southern Baptist Convention, various abuse uh, of power scandals coming out, whether it be Uh, tragically physical kinds of abuse or abuse of power, embezzling funds, pastors who were using uh, money that didn't belong to them, all these kinds of things. In both of these kinds of situations, it is that uh, power is given, an arbitrary measure of power is given to those who ought not have it. And there isn't mutual accountability. There isn't a, a, a collegial spirit amongst elders and deacons. And The Baptist tradition in this country, oftentimes it's the case that there is a pastor and then there are just deacons under him. There are no elders to which he is mutually accountable. And so this is a moment for us to commend ourselves once again to this ancient document, the Belgian Confession, to remind ourselves how God's church is to be governed and kept decently and in order. And one of the the wonderful uses of that is that it protects against these kinds of things that we've seen the church get itself into lately. And so the church governs itself with a spiritual polity, as it says in the confession. And it does so through these three offices, minister, elder, and deacon. 
We see three offices in Scripture. Some would say two and a half offices, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But minister, elder, and deacon. First, what are ministers? Ministers are to be understood as doing the work of apostles, prophets, and evangelists, but at this stage in the history of the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, we read that Christ gives to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And those first three, apostles, prophets, evangelists, they were given for the establishment of the church. Those who would go from city to city and they would proclaim with this um, this extra sense of, of authority, this word from God. But now that the church has been established, that it advances through regular means, those who speak the word of God with authority are these ministers. They preach, they proclaim, they order things unto the word of God, they call the people of God to order their lives around the word of God. God feeds his people through the proclamation of the word. The work of the minister is also seen as part of the rank of elder. And that's why some people in our Reformed tradition would say there, there are two and a half offices. The minister and elder are distinct in some way. They share the same rank. And they would point to scriptures like 1 Timothy chapter 5, which says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. There Paul says that there are elders who will be more given to preaching and teaching, and there will be elders who are given more to governing and ruling. That's also a good text that points out that those who labor in Christ's church and those who give themselves to that work as part of their vocation, they are to be compensated for it. If you want to take it quite literally or over-literally, it, uh, you might think of your pastor as an ox that you would not want to muzzle. It needs grain. So you suppose you could say you could pay your pastor only with food. I'd be fine with that as long as it's Chick-fil-A. Just make sure you give me Chick-fil-A and I'll be, I'll be fine with that. So you see this distinction with elders, some who labor in preaching and teaching and maybe who have more of an aspect of that gift and others uh, who labor in ruling and governing and guarding, guarding the sheep, guarding the, the flock. Ministers fulfill the primary work of kingdom advancement, how the kingdom of God grows and advances to the world. Ministers fulfill this work by proclaiming the gospel, by proclaiming the word of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul says here that the normal way that the kingdom of God advances is by people going through the world and proclaiming the gospel. Those who have been called to that work. And that is a good way for us to think about missions, the missions of the church, supporting those who go out into the world as proclaimers of the gospel, seeking to establish rightly ordered churches. That's reformed church planting. And it is a good work in which to involve ourselves. The word 
And the proclamation of the word is how God builds up his church. We see that all throughout scripture. In 1 Peter, it's likened to milk. The word of God is like milk to a newborn baby. It is what nourishes them. It's what builds them up. It's what brings them to the first stages of maturity in the faith. A wonderful way for us to think about our covenant children and the word that we give them from the earliest times. As it says in the Psalms, you have been my God from my youth, from the womb. You have been my God. The word is also likened to bread. Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord famously says, Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It's like milk, it's like bread. In Hebrews chapter 5, the word is like solid food. You can go deeper, you can bring out deeper truths of the word, particularly those who are more mature in the faith. They can feast on the solid food of the word. The word is likened in Psalm 19 to honey. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. It's for this reason that the word of God is always to be preached. This is the, the central act in which we see God building up his church. He calls sinners to salvation. He calls wandering sheep back to himself. He encourages faithful sheep. He gives them exactly what they need and ministers to them according to their needs. This is why Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God, preach the word. Preach the word. Proclaim it. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, uh, exhort. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Got a little tongue tied in there. Sorry, excuse me. Those are the ministers. Elders are also given part of the governance of the church, joining, of course, as we said, with the ministers at the same rank. Elders are to exercise spiritual oversight. It's a spiritual oversight, a spiritual polity, as we read in the confession. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says this, An overseer, an elder, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? There's a a caring, a leading, shepherding aspect to it. And Paul says that you see it in the home and it goes to the church. And that's why in Article 30 it says reputable, qualified men are to be chosen. Men given the place of authority in the home, the rightly ordered home according to the scriptures. Man is the head of his wife. And that is certainly why we would say scripture, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, says that men are to have this office. Elders exercise spiritual oversight. Elders also preserve the true teaching of the word and the gospel. They protect it. They make sure that what is being proclaimed is in accord with the word of God. It is true. It is the true religion. It is the true gospel. Titus chapter 1 speaks of elders and it says this, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. 
since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Paul saw that there were these false teachers creeping into the church, and he said, it is the elders who have been appointed who are to do battle with this false teaching and make sure that it stays away. Paul, when he was leaving Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, gives this charge to the elders. He says this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul says it is these elders, these overseers, who will protect the flock. Elders also exercise the keys of the kingdom by discipline. So insofar as they ensure that the true gospel is preached, that the word of God is preached, they are exercising the authority of the keys of the kingdom to open wide the gates of heaven. This is what the church does. The church is given the authority to open wide the gates of heaven and proclaim the gospel. Salvation is had full and free if you trust in Christ, if you look to his work on your behalf and trust that you can have forgiveness through his work. The elders also exercise the authority of the keys of the kingdom in Closing the gates of heaven. Uh, Sinners, transgressors, are to be punished and restrained by spiritual means. We are to ensure that God's people live faithful lives and that they obey the word of the Lord and that they do not stray in terms of doctrine or life. They pay heed to all of what God says in Scripture. This is the tough calling the solemn responsibility that is placed upon the elders of the church. We can even see in our own church order the work that the elders are called to. It says this, Members who have sinned shall be faithfully discipled by the consistory, and if they persist in their sin, shall be excluded from membership in the church of Christ. God's people are not to remain in unrepentant sin. And this is very clearly laid out in Scripture. And in the context of the church, this is all where this is played out. We need to make sure that God's people humble themselves, confess their sins, understand their need for Christ, understand the life to which God calls them. In all of these things, it's not because elders or officers are to be desirous of kicking people out. That's not what it is at all. We're always working towards repentance. We're always working towards restoring the sinner and calling them to repent and to be filled with godly sorrow that trusts in Christ once again. Church discipline in that way mirrors the gospel that uh, when someone repents of their sin, they're fully welcomed back into the flock and we rejoice to welcome them back upon their repentance. That's what elders do. Deacons are called to Uh, are called to work in the house of the Lord as well. And we see that as it's laid out in Scripture and in our confession. Deacons are to relieve the elders of addressing the material necessities of the needy among God's people. 
See, the office of deacon was laid out in Acts chapter 6. Here is the account. It says this. In these days when the disciples were increasing in number, in other words, the followers of Jesus, the church is growing, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Greek widows aren't getting the same kind of consideration that the Jewish widows were. So the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up the preaching of the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and then it goes on to list the rest of the men. This is the, the beginning of the office of deacon in the New Testament church. There were all of these issues that were arising. We are a family. We're a family, the New Testament church. We are to care for each other and minister to each other's needs. Deacons do this. They minister to the poor and distressed, particularly to widows and to orphans if they ever have the opportunity to do so. They, may, they help to make us a family. The deacons help our way of life as it appears to outsiders, as people watch the church of God work and move amongst one another. The way that we love each other, deacons lead us in that work and show us how we are to care for each other's needs. But they relieve the work of the elders as these issues arise, so that the elders can devote themselves to the spiritual governance, the shepherding of the flock of God, and those who teach can give themselves to the word of God and to prayer the word of God, and to prayer. It's a wonderful reminder, too, even there in Acts 6. What are pastors to be doing? Giving themselves to the ministry of the word, public and private, amongst the congregation, and prayer. Prayer. Pastor's time is to be largely taken up with prayer. Why this polity? Why this structure? Because Christ is the only head of the church. Because Christ is the king of the church. Because Christ is the foundation of the church. He is the cornerstone of the church. And as the church of Jesus Christ, all that we are doing is we are being stewards of the good news that in Christ we find all that we need. And this governance, ministers, elders, and deacons working together, as it says, to form the council of the church, what are we doing? We're ministering Christ to God's people and we're ministering Christ to the world. Elders minister the benefits of Christ. Deacons minister the mercy of Christ. And it's all for the glory of God in Jesus. Christ-centered governance brings out the centrality and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his work. We're stewards. That's what the officers of the church are. We're stewards. We're not celebrities. Uh, we're not the kind of people that deserve some kind of special recognition. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. It's all for him. You think of that passage that we read in Jeremiah chapter 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy. Woe to the leaders of Israel who have run roughshod over the people of God and have led them astray. In the Old Covenant context, these shepherds, these leaders in Israel, lacked the righteousness of the good shepherd. And they pointed forward to one who would come after them, as Jeremiah 23 says, there will rise up one, a righteous branch, and he will come and he will execute justice in the land. He will bring God's people to pasture, 
and he will feed them. And so when Jeremiah looks forward with his prophetic eyes, one of the things that that he sees is that, yes, there will be shepherds who will be appointed over God's people. But if we bring that into the new covenant, those who are shepherding God's people correctly, what are they doing? They're doing it in the service of Jesus Christ, as Jesus Christ is reigning in heaven. And all that they are doing is pointing people to the sufficiency of Christ. Trust in Him. Trust in the work of the Spirit in you. The context of the church that is rightly ordered according to God's Word. We need the assurance that comes through the righteous branch, as Jeremiah 23 says. See, who can truly, who truly shepherds God's people? Only Christ can. Only Christ can. When I, when I visit people who are hurting, when I visit people who are sick, I say, I cannot personally minister to your soul. Only the Lord can do that. I can point you to truth. I can proclaim truth. Only God can heal your soul. Only God can heal your soul. And only he can lift up your faith in the eyes of your heart to where it needs to be. So then, as we see in, he- in Hebrews chapter 13, a congregation that has fed the word that has fed the benefits of Christ, will be submissive to the voice of Christ that is present in its leaders. That's why it says in Hebrews 13, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Those who rule in Christ's church will give an account for their work. But... The congregation is to trust them because what are they doing? Uh, They are pointing them to Jesus and to the sufficiency of his work. They're shepherding in his stead. Not for their own glory, not for the praise of men, but for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So, So Peter says in the fifth chapter of his first letter, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed... Peter says, I, I'm a fellow elder, and how'd you like to go to a presbytery meeting with, uh, with Peter right next to you as you're hashing out the problems in your regional church? Fellow elder, partaker in the glory, and then he says this to, to the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You're ministering, elders particularly, and then deacons alongside of elders, but elders exercising that particularly spiritual oversight in the stead of the shepherd who is coming again, the righteous branch. So being stewards of the mystery of God, ruling in the midst of the church, all for the glory of God, to exalt the work of Jesus Christ. This is a, a work to which everyone is accountable to in some sense. We read in, in Article 31 that officers are to be elected by the congregation. And that is one of the ways in which we ensure that power does not remain in the hands of a precious few. But it also speaks of the necessity of the congregation learning about the word of God. And knowing the truth of the gospel. And being able to recognize these virtues in the men amongst you. Who knows the word? Right? Who has a good reputation? Who is virtuous and trusts in the Lord and has a sound faith? These are the kinds of things that God calls us to in his church. May he continue to do so. May he continue to uh, rule in his church. And may his people be brought to obedience 
by the sufficiency of Christ's work and the work of the Spirit in us through him. Let us pray. So indeed, our gracious God, we give you thanks and praise and adoration. We ask that you would be with us as we go out into this week. We thank you for this reminder that in the church we find our spiritual mother. We thank you that it is not given arbitrary authority and power, but that it is regulated by your word. And that there, here, here in the church, we find your love and your grace. Father, we thank you for the work that it is doing in us. May we never neglect this great blessing that you give to us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I'll ask uh, the gems to come on up, and then as they come up, I'll give the benediction.